join me in standing for the reading of God's word, which comes this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Father, we're so very grateful that because we have no worth or merit of our own, you provided a way for us to be counted as righteous through the blood of your son. Give us the courage to answer your call to be ambassadors to this lost and hurting world so that the lost souls can call on the name of Jesus and be saved. In his name, amen. What an awesome introduction and example as we discuss what it means to be an ambassador for Christ. That is the extreme example on one end. To leave the comfort of home and what you know, to go to a place in a foreign land to say Jesus is King and Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior to people who don't know. But for those of us here, there's also another example that I had in my life a couple years ago. Now, my boys, I eat M&Ms or chocolate almonds or whatever, and they see it and they ask for it. Sometimes I'll just give it to them. Other times, I make them earn it. They got to work for it, okay? So this time in particular, sometimes I'll tell them to dance. Hey, go say three nice things to your mom. This time I decided, I need a little missionary here. So Riley came up and he says, what can I do to get those? I said, I want you to run outside and say, Jesus loves you. Go tell the world that Jesus loves you. And so he got all excited. He starts running outside, flings open the door. He goes outside on the porch and says, hey, everyone, Jesus loves me. (laughs) And I loved it. And I thought about it, and I thought, I could not have thought about that thing, little boy, when you did that. But he is absolutely right. He is an ambassador for Christ. We like to tell the world, hey, Jesus loves you, but we usually should start with, Jesus loves me. I'm a testimony. I'm the image. I'm the example of what it means to be loved by Christ. We are Christ's ambassadors. Brothers and sisters, that is a a command. It's a joy. It's something we get to learn and involve ourselves in. And so this morning, my hope, I could equip equip you with a lot of different ways and styles. We're not doing that. We're just looking at what are the responsibilities of being an ambassador? What are the joys? What are the challenges? And specifically, why would God entrust us with this message? Will you pray with me? Father, will you open our eyes to the scripture that we, had, we looked through today? Will you give us ears to hear and a heart to receive what you have already given us many, many years ago? May we be faithful to your calling and recognize that you are a part of it with us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. To begin with, very simply, an ambassador exists to deliver a message. An ambassador exists to deliver a message. Look at, with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church his, his next letter to them after he received the first one. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Paul gives the Corinthian church a precise charge. They are ambassadors for Christ to a world without Christ. Framing it another way, we're foreign diplomats living, working, and enjoying a country we no longer consider our home. Peter, in his epistle, will tell us that we are foreigners and exiles while we live on this earth, waiting faithfully for the Lord's to appear again. 
But this cultural context of being an ambassador is a little bit different. I mean, we kind of recognize it today that we have an embassy and we have an ambassador to Italy and we think of it in that framework. It, it, it was a little bit different back in those days when Paul is writing this. So let me give you a little bit of the background, the contextual things you must consider. In the ancient world, ambassadors did not live in an embassy or have a cushy consulate from which people came to, came to them. The opposite was true. Instead, the picture of an ambassador was by definition someone who did not live at home. They lived in a foreign land. The reasons for them being an ambassador in a foreign land could be varied. It could be them to attend a celebration, a coronation of a, another leader. It could be to purchase building materials that you needed for your country that you did not have. Those resources were not in your hometown. It could even be to secure military passage. Most commonly, however, in Paul's day, in writing this, they were imperial messengers, imperial legates, to the people and cities outside the empire. The emperor sent them to prevent a war or to establish harmony between them and the empire if there was war. They were to deliver a peace treaty more often than not. Countless Roman ambassadors who went on this journey, if you look throughout Roman history, were either successful or unsuccessful. Many unwillingly lost their heads as a declaration of war by those whom they were sent to. But you were, a, you were an ambassador. You were on mission to deliver the king's message for as long as the king decreed. Make, make certain that it was an honorable position to be entrusted by the king, but it was a dangerous one. With that background in place, Paul tells these Christians, you are Christ's ambassadors. But where and to whom? He doesn't give us that. Very simply, it's to this world. We are foreign diplomats bringing a message of peace and harmony to God's enemies because everyone born stands accused of rebellion against God and his kingdom. And guess what? You and I, we have the terms of peace. Paul's command is an extension of his own transformational com- uh, conversion. He is the ideal image of what it's like to going, being from an enemy to an ambassador. On the road to Damascus, He was on his way to kill more of Christ's ambassadors, just like he did in Jerusalem and Judea. And on the road, on his way to Damascus, he is knocked off his horse. Christ is revealed to him for the first time, and his heart is transformed and changed. He is an old creation that has now become new, and he's the chief ambassador to the Gentile world. And he now tells the Corinthians, he tells you and I, continue this message, continue this charge. Now, for the most part, when you think about that, man, that's an awesome conversion, Anybody in here have the Shekinah glory in their pocket they can just throw out at people? They get knocked off their horse and believe? Anybody have that experience? One. Okay, well, we're going to talk about that. All right, there we go. I didn't think that was going to happen. With the exception of that person, none of us have that. You and I instead are called to be ambassadors. We have been gifted with the skill and ability to share this good news in a world that doesn't know it. But what are the responsibilities of being this ambassador? Very simply, we're going to go through these four responsibilities in order to be an ambassador for Christ. And it begins with ambassadors must get the message right. Paul shares this message with us. It's the same message today as it was then. Very simply, be reconciled to God. You will hear us often say it in another way. It's the gospel. It's the good news. Paul gives us an abridged version in verse 21. Look with me. Read with me in this. He made 
the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God gave him Christ who knew no sin. This isn't, this isn't Christ just being naive to the reality of sin. This idea of knowledge is to, be, to consume it, to, to be in his identity. Christ had no, nothing to identify with sin, but God made him to be sin so that you and I could receive the righteousness of God. We can be an old creation made new. See, the message of the gospel that we need to get right is the person and the work of Jesus. His good news is the message of reconciliation between God and mankind. So we need to know Christ and his ministry for our message to be correct. So let's explore the primary aspects, the two primary aspects of our message in this world. First, Jesus is king. We are ambassadors for Christ. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, we preach Christ crucified. We must remember that Christ is not his last name. What is it? It's his title. It's who he is. He is the high anointed king. That's what Christ means. He is the king who has come and he's coming again. At the great commission, when he sends his disciples into the world, what does he tell them? All authority has been given on earth. And heaven and on earth has been given to me. And just because this world has, not, has sidelined his authority does not reflect the absence of his authority in this world. Jesus is the anointed king. He will return as a warrior king to war against the nations who rebel against him. But before he does that, he sends us, his messengers, to announce his imminent return. What this means for us is very simple. We are ambassadors for America on the behalf of an absolute monarchy. I'll let the irony sink in a little bit. We were founded by throwing off the shackles of a tyrant and yet we are here proclaiming a good one, a good king who is coming, who will rule absolutely and who will reign without end. Jesus is king. We lose sight of this. We forget this. We like to be gods of our own little worlds. And so we placate this message of him being king because we don't quite grasp it. But that doesn't take away that Jesus is king. But the next aspect of his ministry is that Jesus is savior. Notice, Jesus is not the helper. Yes, he helps, but he's not AAA, all right? He's not the guy you call when you're stranded at the road of life and you're out of gas or the doctor you go visit once a year. Jesus is the Savior. He is the Savior King who resurrects those who are dead. And Paul says very clearly that we are dead in our trespasses to sin. And so the way we go about thinking about Jesus as Savior and try to convey this message of King and of Savior, we think of ways in which we can do it to make it a little easier, a little accessible. How many of you have seen a picture like this before in a way to describe God? <laughs> Anybody look at that and go, that's kind of weird. Like, that's not, that's not entirely right. You're absolutely correct. Monty Python's depiction of God is not good. So when you kind of looked at it and went like, mm, I don't think that floats the boat. You're absolutely right. But I look at that the whole picture. Where in Scripture are, is mankind and God on the same footing? Where can you think of? I can think of one place. Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent tempted Eve. Won't you be like God? See, this representation, it, it's fine. I, I, I know we've used it. It's well intended, but it's wrong. This is not the case. This is not actual depiction of where we stand in relationship to God. We are not on equal footing. We don't just need to cross a gap. This is what it should look like. 
We are dead at the bottom of that valley. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. And the cross is what is lowered to resuscitate and revive dead souls. Jesus is a savior. He's not just a helper. We must get the message right of the gospel. Otherwise, other people may be deceived unknowingly, unwittingly, believing in a gospel that's watered down. A watered-down gospel is not the gospel. It's not the good news. Gospel very simply and very clearly. I'd love for you to write this down and commit it to memory. The gospel is the royal announcement that the king has come into the world. He lived a sinless life, died an atoning death, was resurrected and ascended back into heaven. And all who believe in his message are saved from eternal judgment. This is what Paul means when he says, we plead on Christ, we plead on the anointed king's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is the message. And we must get it right. But in reading that and thinking through that, I'm sure some in here, as I have done, think to myself, I'm disqualified, I can't do that. I can't get the message right. I'm going to stumble, I'm going to fumble my way through it. Yeah, we do that. But Paul is delivering this message to Corinth. Last time I checked, the sin, trials, and tribulations in this church don't match that one. And Paul still expects it of them. Brothers and sisters, he expects it of us. Our joy is found in delivering the message, the right message. And so he can expect it of us. And I would challenge you and implore you to consider yourself, I must commit this message to memory. Because ambassadors cannot change the message. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4, right in his previous message to the Corinthians, he writes, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. We need to safeguard the sacred. The gospel is sacred. Paul reminds his children in the faith of the message he received and passed on to them. If Paul had changed this message in any way, it becomes his message and it's no longer the king's message. Suppose we change any part of what we receive of first importance, then it's no longer the gospel. It's a false gospel. But creating false gospels is not hard to do. Most often than not, well-meaning people do it. We're trying to help people understand, and so we lighten the burden of the, and the load of understanding and the complexity of what took place. Think of this, for example. We know people may get offended when you tell them that they're wrong, so we'll leave out the rebellious nature of sin. People may get confused as to why Christ even needed to die on the cross in the first place, so we'll sugarcoat, we'll sugarcoat the cross. People might disagree that eternal judgment is real, so we'll just somehow add air conditioning to hell. We will do no such thing as ambassadors. We will deliver the message as it was given. See, recent church history is actually a great example of how easy it is for us to to twist the gospel into something it's not. In the 1980s, prosperity in America was something you can look back, read about, and experience. And that prosperity came to the church. Churches grew and grew. There were mega churches before, but in the 80s, that was the movement. Churches grew in size, and because of that, in the American way, we wrongly assume that just because there is great growth, therefore, that must be God's blessing and affirmation. And so in order to keep that growth happening and the numbers keep increasing, the gospel got watered down in some ways. The prosperity gospel was founded in, 
and considering more about who's outside this walls than who's in it. So the messages preached were, um, were constructed with who would respond outside rather than those who are inside the church. That's how you get gospels, like the examples I just shared. You consider, well, someone may not like hell. Someone may not consider Jesus actually being king. That may be foreign. There's some complexities. So we, we'll just shave off some of these corners. But here's some of the gospels you get when you do that. You only hear Jesus is your personal savior. That's half true. Yes, he saved us, but it's not private. For God loved the world in this way that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's the world. He came to bring God, the, the glory to himself through saving and he's rescued us all to himself. But it gets worse than that. Let go and let God. God wants to save you. You just have to let him. Your best life now, my personal favorite. <laughs> These are not gospels. They're nice messages. They tickle the ear. They make me feel better, but they do not rescue me from the king who is coming. Is it any surprise that we've seen so many churches turn apostate under the pressure of the world over the last 10 years? No. A watered-down gospel is not the gospel. That's why we have to safeguard the sacred. If we read a little bit ahead in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3-4, through 4, Paul grills the Corinthians. He exposes a natural tendency in them as a church. He says in verse 3, But I fear that, as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, or you received a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. This is a mic drop moment from Paul. You accept it so easily. You're seduced by it so genuinely. Why? Because they don't know the real thing. Brothers and sisters, the best way for us to safeguard the sacred is to know the gospel. So what we just memorized, what I'd love for you to memorize, what the gospel is, or here in 1 Corinthians, what Paul says, what I passed on to you in first, of first importance, if we commit this to memory, safeguarded in our heart, it will be safeguarded in our church. This will be the message we present not a false gospel, not a watered-down gospel. As ambassadors, the message cannot change. We are not at liberty to do so. Commit the gospel to memory. And in doing so, you'll recognize that ambassadors must deliver the message. It should go without saying. It's kind of redundant. And yet, there's an aspect to delivering the message I fear many of us have grown to forget. In Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15, Paul writes about his brethren, the Jews, and he says this, How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Like I said, this point may be necessarily redundant, and yet notice Paul's progression in these verses. Paul begins with a heart and compassion for his people. How will they know? How can they call on him? How can they worship the king? How can they know Jesus? How can they be set free from the pain and anguish of what the law is crushing them with? He wants them to know the grace and mercy he received on the road to Damascus. He knows their burden and grief because he's felt it. He's been there. 
And now he's revealing to us the process behind which we go about. We deliver this message because, out of great importance because we love those whom we are around. Like Paul, a broken world cut off from the grace and mercy of Christ surrounds us. Yes, this world has the common grace given to all humanity, but they do not know, they do not know the Creator's love. They don't have the assurance of what is coming. The joy of being known and loved. They search and they cannot find it because they chose either to not believe or they haven't heard. Like it or not, we don't have a choice to go. We're not ambassadors of a democracy in which we, in which we get a vote. We are ambassadors for an absolute monarchy for as long as the king has us here. Look again at this verse. Look what he concludes with. It's actually a quote from Isaiah 52 verse 7. When he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He's not saying messengers have nice feet, all right? So if you think about this, is he saying all Christians, we just have nice feet. That's how they'll know we are followers of Christ. No, the exact opposite. I don't know if it's opposite. Maybe you do have nice feet. But Isaiah's message is the elation one has when they see a runner descending from the mountain with news of victory, the restoration of a city. But I want you to read the whole verse in Isaiah 52, verse 7. Read Read it with me. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. When I read this verse, I recognize a worshiper of God. When I read this verse, the person who's proclaiming this message doesn't just believe it, they love it. It is in their heart and soul to proclaim this message. It is great joy. This is a worshiper of God. We deliver this message, not just because we have to, because it brings us great joy when we do so. I'm sure many in here have experienced or had the thought of, I want the presence of God to be tangible in my life. Others have described it. Some people have heard it, but I've never felt it. I'll tell you this right now. I will guarantee you the expression and deliverance of the message as ambassadors, you will recognize the presence of God in that moment. There is great joy, regardless of how someone responds to the proclamation of the message, Joy is secured in your heart as you retell what you believe and love most. Deliver the message. Yes, responses will vary, but your joy will not. And I believe the primary reason for our reluctance to share this message, to enjoy it just like this runner does in Isaiah, is because we've yet to enjoy living the message. Ambassadors, finally, must live the message. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians, where we started this morning, in chapter 5. But we need to jump back a few verses in verse 16. Paul says very simply, From now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we've known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet we no longer know him this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. When we read that the old is passing away and that the new is arriving, what what came to mind? What did you think of? What is old and what is new? What is old about you? What is new about you? Very simply, what is new is a life, and what is new and old is a life governed by sin and self-rule is replaced by righteousness and Christ-likeness. Our transformation into Christ-likeness affirms the truthfulness and the validity of the gospel's claims. Brothers and sisters, you and I are the proof to the message in which we proclaim. We are the best example that Jesus is both King and Savior. 
From now on, Paul says to these Christians, we no longer know anyone from a worldly perspective. How we view the world and the people is new. The way we look at the world around us is different. Our distinction that we bring to this world is very simple. People are either in Christ or they are not. They either believe or they reject. They are either a new creation or an old one. Why is this so significant? Why does Paul need to remind them the way we view the world is no longer through the world's eyes, but through Christ's? Because we can so easily peg people as not needing to hear the message. We can so easily remove ourselves from needing to deliver it and live it because there's no way they're going to choose it. That's not how Christ saw it. For the better part of two weeks, we witnessed the devastation of war and the profound outpouring of support for the people of Ukraine. I don't know about you, but I view the people of Ukraine differently now. I see them anew. I see a people who's rallying together to defend one another, to support one another. I've seen videos of Christians singing hymns in subway tunnels, proclaiming the good news in times of devastation. Our eyes have been changed, but that shouldn't be surprising to us. Because as Christians, we should look at everyone with the, with the potential of the, uh, the fact that they are image bearers that need restoring. It should not surprise us. We are a new creation, and our vision of all the people around us ought to be different. See, if you remember in Corinth from the past couple weeks, division and factionalism is their world. It's what they breathe, but it's here too. We view the mission field as Christ did. At least that's the call, and that's the goal. Remember, it was Jesus who sought out Zacchaeus to meet with him. It was Jesus who called Matthew, a tax collector, on social status with a prostitute and a sinner. He called him to be in his inner circle of disciples. It was Jesus who went and and spoke to the woman ostracized by society. He dared speak to the woman at the well, knowing full well her life and what it meant to associate with her. Jesus had compassion for his lost creation. That's because he had compassion for everyone. I want you to write down, I want you to look up an article by B.B. Warfield. It was written in the early 1900s. And the article is called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. It's short. You can probably get it done in 15, 20 minutes. But in it, he, cat- he puts together a list. What are the most common emotional responses of Jesus to the world around him? Number one is compassion. The most common response we can recognize Jesus having with the world around him is to love them, to take pity on them, be moved in action for them. That should be true of us because of this message. This is what it means to put off the old and put on the new, that we no longer view the world from the world's perspective. We view it through Christ's eyes. Compassion ought to be what defines us in the world around us. So do you want to change the world? Share the gospel with your neighbor. And if you want to experience the presence of the Lord, proclaim his message. And so how can you be an ambassador today? I would pray some of you in here, young and old, would consider if the Lord is leading you to be a full-time missionary in a place that you don't call your home. That's an extreme case. And we celebrate Brooke and Cameron, even though generationally everyone their age is focused on self and providing for themselves, they are not. Some of you need to consider that. That their image and example is supposed to be a testimony to you. But it also can be something just as simple as a little boy going outside of his house Jesus loves me. It could be that simple to be an ambassador. Brothers and sisters, what we lay before you is a responsibility, but there is joy. 
There is joy in that responsibility. And there is great encouragement as we see the church motivated to be ambassadors for Christ, for Jesus as King and His Savior, and He's coming again. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, it amazes me that you've entrusted us with this message. You trust us to get it right. You trust us not to change it. You trust us to deliver it, and you trust us to live it. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we have abandoned it, watered it down, or ceased to apply it. But we know where there's forgiveness, there is grace and there is mercy. So, Father, will you please anoint everyone in here with a compassionate heart to share your gospel to the world. So give us eyes to see the people around us anew in a way in which you would have us do so. Not through the labels of the world, but truly in a way in which we are motivated, that we are compelled to share the good news that you are both King and Savior. We thank you for our time this morning and ask for you to bless us as we conclude in worshiping you, bringing you adoration. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Brother.